All right, well, it's good to see you tonight. Uh, can I have you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1? Now, we started 1 Peter, I think, last week. If you weren't here, uh, we only got as far as a verse and a half. So, uh, you know, you're pretty close to the beginning, all right? But uh, let's, in fact, just pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let me stop there. First of all, let me say this to you. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the Bible doesn't teach the Trinity. It certainly does. And I've had people say, no, it doesn't. The word Trinity is not even in the Bible. Folks, the word Bible is not in the Bible. <laughs> but you have one in your laps. Trinity is the word we've given. The Godhead, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Three persons, distinct, separate, yet one God together. Here in verse 2, Peter is telling us that the Trinity all had a part in our salvation. Just as Paul said, uh, remember as we studied Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Paul said that we were chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit. That was all in chapter 1 of Ephesians as he's introducing uh, his subject matter. But uh, here Peter says much the same thing, but in a little different terms. Uh, he says, first of all, we were chosen, and the word there is elected, Greek word could be translated elected or chosen, we were chosen by the Father in eternity past. And then he says we were sanctified by the Spirit. Now, the word sanctified is a word that means to be set apart. To be set apart. The idea being set apart from the world to God. It's also the Greek word we get the word holy from. The word is hagias in the Greek. And it's the word we get our word holy from as well. Now, with regard to sanctification, there are two types of sanctification. There is positional and practical. Practical sanctification, I think, is one we're most familiar with, all right, which, you know, we all define as walking closely with the Lord, and by doing so, the Holy Spirit then makes us more and more like Jesus, practically speaking. Uh, you can read 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, because Paul really says that very thing that uh, the whole goal of the Spirit is to transform us more and more into the image of Christ, and he does it as we yield to him in obedience and submission. And, uh, but that's the goal. That's what sanctification is on a practical level. More and more we're set apart from the world, closer and closer to God, and the closer we get to God, the more we become like God, God-like or godly is the idea, all right? Positional sanctification, we don't tend to think about as much uh, not in general, okay? Let me just make it simple. Positional sanctification is salvation. Salvation. Where the instant a person receives Jesus into their heart as the Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit takes them out of the world, yes, spiritually and visibly, and sets them apart. Where? In the body of Christ. They become the people or the children of God. So that's positional sanctification. Um, that happens instantaneously when you receive Christ. You are instantly taken from the world. We're still in the world. No longer of the world. All right? We are taken out of the world in a spiritual sense, placed in the body of Christ, so we're set apart unto God by being a part of another body of Christ. When you are placed, or when you, guys, because you're saved, when you were placed in the body of Christ, that was at the moment you got saved. So positional sanctification is salvation. And this, guys, is the sanctification that Peter had in mind, I believe, in verse 2. If you interpret what Peter says in verse 2 as talking about practical sanctification, well, you're going to interpret Peter's statement to mean that salvation is something that we earn gradually the more we live a sanctified or a holy life. Now, there's a lot of groups that teach this. Uh, that you're not going, you have to earn your salvation by living a holy life. Um, you know, and if you get saved and you don't live a holy life, you can lose your salvation and go to hell, a lot of groups teach. But this idea that 
Salvation is something that we earn installments of until we purchase the whole thing through our good works. That's Catholic theology. Roman Catholic theology, uh, they teach that you don't know if you have eternal life. You won't know until you stand before God someday. Until then, if you say, I have eternal life, even as John says, 1 John 5, I think 13 to 15, okay, we have eternal life. Catholic Church says, if you say you have it already, you are to be anathematized, cursed of the lowest hell. Not even the Pope knows if he's saved until he dies, is what Catholic theology teaches. So this idea that we live a sanctified or a holy life, and therefore we earn pieces of salvation until we've purchased the whole thing, guys, not only is it incorrect, it's heresy, obviously. It will be a works-based system of righteousness, again, in line with Roman Catholic doctrine. They're not the only group that teaches that kind of thing, though. So Peter is telling us, guys, that when it came to our salvation, we were, first of all, chosen by the Father. Secondly, set apart, sanctified by the Holy Spirit from the world, the moment of salvation, how? Through faith. Through faith. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul said, You all know it, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. And guys, Peter is saying that very thing here in verse 2, when he says, In sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. Remember again, he's talking about the Spirit's role in our salvation. It's, you know, it's really important that we know what God's word is actually saying because how can you live it if you wrongly interpret it this is why we try not to just race through and just you know because a lot of things Christians read and they misread uh, verses and they come away with things that God really hasn't said or at least hasn't said for that particular passage it's important that we Take the time to know clearly what God is actually saying before we can apply it into our lives, right? So when Peter said in verse 2, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience, we can make a case, okay, how that when the Holy Spirit set us apart, it was for obedience. And we can interpret that, and it wouldn't be wrong because plenty of other places in the Bible teach this, but just not here, okay? When we read that, now, you know, the Spirit set us apart for obedience. We could easily interpret that to mean uh, that the whole point of salvation is obedience to all that the Spirit of God has written in the Word. Uh, the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's called the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So, you know, it would be very easy to make the case that when the Holy Spirit set us apart, He set us apart to live lives of total obedience to all that God has said in His Word. We could not argue with that, Right? It's just that that's not what Peter is saying right here. He's not talking about daily practical obedience to all that God has said in his word, as important as that is. But obedience to the faith at the moment we received the gospel. As Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest put it, it's not the obedience of the saint, someone already saved that's in view here, but that of the sinner to the faith, end quote. The same idea is expressed in Acts 6, verse 7. You have to turn there, where it says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were, listen, obedient to the faith. In other words, they got saved. The issue there is, uh, is being obedient to the gospel, being obedient to the faith in the sense that you embrace it at the moment of salvation. That's the idea. Now, of course, salvation wouldn't be possible without the work of the final person of the Trinity, the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and his sacrifice on our behalf. And so Peter goes on to say, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Peter is Jewish, and so he has that background. And Peter knows that in the first covenant, covenant and testament, same idea, okay? In the first testament, the old, we call it the Old Testament, okay? For them, it was the word of God, okay? But the idea is that when God ratified the Mosaic covenant, 
Remember how he, and you can read about this in either the old Exodus or uh, Hebrews 9. Uh, lays this. In fact, we'll read a little bit of Hebrews 9 in a little bit. But when God had Moses ratify the new covenant, put it into force, or excuse me, the old covenant, Mosaic covenant, uh, he had him kill some animals. Then he had some blood put in a basin, I think mixed with some water, dipped a hyssop branch, I believe, in there, sprinkled the words of the law, the terms of the covenant, and the people. And that ratified the covenant. It put it into force. As we're going to see, a covenant or a testament is a will. A will doesn't come into force until something or someone dies. In the old covenant, an animal or the animals died. And that ratified the old covenant. Well, Peter is picking up on that and saying, but we have now a new covenant. And guess what? It's not ratified in the blood of goats and bulls and animals. It's ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ, who not only died for us, but then became our high priest and sprinkled us, as it were, with his blood, ratifying the new covenant. The new covenant. Once again, Kenneth Wee summarized what Peter is saying about the work that each person in the Trinity does to save us. He said, and I quote, We have, therefore, the three steps taken by the three persons of the triune God. God the Father chooses the sinner to salvation. God the Spirit brings the sinner thus chosen to the act of faith. And God the Son cleanses him in his precious blood, end quote. I like the way Warren Worsby, though, personalized it. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, As far as God the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. But as far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved one night in May 1945 when I heard the gospel and received Christ. Then it all came together, but it took all three persons of the Godhead to bring me to salvation. If we separate these ministries, we will either deny divine sovereignty or human responsibility, and that would lead to heresy, end quote. Well, then Peter ends verse 2 with a very common New Testament salutation. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. I like what my pastor used to always say, because grace and peace are, he said, the Siamese twins of the New Testament. But he said, you'll never experience the peace of God until you first experience the grace of God. In other words, in salvation, right? It's only when we're saved that we will ever know the peace of God which surpasses human understanding because it's rooted in God filling us with his Holy Spirit. So verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy... Let me stop there. Now remember, the context is salvation, basically. We've pointed that out. This is along the lines that God... Now, the context being salvation, who according to his abundant mercy, Mercy, but let me stop there, okay? The idea of mercy being at the heart of our salvation, how God offered it to us, is a very important thing that not only Peter, but Paul and the other New Testament writers pointed out. This is very much along the lines of something Paul said, uh, wrote to Titus, uh, something I like to share with my Roman Catholic friends who try to tell me that you get to heaven by lighting candles and praying rosaries and doing works. I like to take him to Titus 3, verse 5, which says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, once we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in, washes us of our sins, and begins a lifelong process of sanctification on the practical level, okay? Uh, but not by works of righteousness. It's not doing good works, going to church, uh, lighting candles, praying rosaries, helping out in the local food pantry. Uh, that's a very noble thing, that last one, helping poor people. Nothing wrong with that. Very good. But if you think it's going to earn you points with God that will purchase your salvation, you're absolutely mistaken. Because we are saved by grace, through faith, and all due to the mercy of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, this is the same thing that Peter now shares really in verse 3. 
Let me read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy, listen, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me read to you one more time out of the NLT. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been, listen, born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I'm going to ask you a very basic question. It's rhetorical. You don't really have to answer. Just listen, though. But some of you may not know this. Most of you do, I'm sure. What does it mean to be born again? Because Peter says it here, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. Well, uh, again, the NLT says we have been born again. All right. What does it mean to be born again? Guys, that phrase appears only three times in the New Testament. Twice in John chapter 3 and once right here in 1 Peter 1 verse 23. Of course, the one we're most familiar with is in John 3 where Jesus talked about, uh, talked about it in a conversation he had with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. So turn to John 3, if you will. This will cover familiar ground for most of you, but it may not be something that some of you know, so let's just cover it. Born again. It's a phrase we know very well. It uh, first got its start right here in John 3. Let's pick it up in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, so, you know, as we've said, Nick at night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, these miracles, that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, guys, I believe that what's in view here are the two births necessary for salvation, one physical and the other spiritual. When it comes to physical birth, we know that before a child is born, he or she lives in their mother's womb in what some have called the bag of waters, which is the amniotic fluid that surrounds and protects the baby in the uterus. Of course, when the time is right, the bag of water breaks and the baby is born. This, I believe, is what Jesus meant when he talked about being born of water. He was talking about a physical birth. Now, a lot of people don't agree with that interpretation. They think it's way too simplistic, uh, and so on and so forth. And you know what? I'm a simple guy. If the simplest explanation makes sense, why look anywhere else, right? And to bolster this interpretation that Jesus had physical birth in mind here. Because some people say, well, it's water baptism. It's, some people say, well, it's, it's, it's the sprinkling of the word, we're, because Peter even says we're born of the word of God. We'll talk about that later, okay? Right now we're in John 3, all right? I believe when Jesus said, you know, he said that um, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God. Uh, being born of water is what I just told you. Uh, physical birth, bag of water breaks, the baby is born. That interpretation in my mind is bolstered by how Jesus qualifies verse 5 with verse 6. Let me read verse 5 again. Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's talking about physical birth. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Let me just stop there. I've had the teacher say to me with regard to that interpretation, it's redundant. If somebody came up to you and said, how do I get saved? And you said, we've got to be born first physically, and then born again spiritually. That would sound stupid, wouldn't it? But again, look at the context. Context is everything, isn't it? Jesus said, Nicodemus, you're not going to see heaven unless you are born again. But I'm an old man. 
How can an old man crawl back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? He's thinking physically. Jesus said, no, no, no. You need one birth physical and the next birth spiritual to get into heaven. The context to me is pretty straightforward, okay? So that which is born of the flesh is flesh, speaking of physical birth, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, what does it mean to be born of the spirit? Well, this is a concept that gets that uh, got started in the Garden of Eden. Uh, we talked about it Sunday, actually. Interesting how the studies will dovetail together. But uh, remember when God created the world and all of that, and in and, and, and six days he populated it and, you know, and uh, made a beautiful garden and uh, created Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then from Adam he made Eve and uh, married them, and they were in this beautiful garden together in perfect fellowship or communion with God. They only had one prohibition because God came down in the cool of the day every day to fellowship with them. And it was a wonderful paradise environment. They didn't have to work. just They just had to kind of look over the garden, and everything was going to bring forth on its own. No planting, cultivating, weeding, and all that stuff, right? It was a pretty good gig if you can get it. And so... But God says, one prohibition, you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden, because in the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Well, of course, you remember the story. Uh, Satan took the form of a serpent, beguiled Eve, she ate, gave to Adam, he did eat, and they did die. But not physically, although they did set in motion the process of physical death. At that moment, they began now to grow old and eventually would die physically. But what happened instantaneously is they experienced spiritual death. See, remember when it says in Genesis that God made man in his own image after his own likeness. God is a triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? He made us in his image, a triune being, spirit, soul, and body. And we connected with God spirit to spirit for communion and fellowship and everything else. Look at the order of man when he was first created. Spirit. That was dominant. That was the most important thing. Consciousness. He was alive. And his consciousness lived to satisfy the things of the spirit. The body, which was important, was on the lowest rung. Because God does not want the body to be all supreme. But when man sinned, his spirit died instantly. He was severed from God. His nature was flipped upside down. Now the body became uppermost, dominant. A man's consciousness now was consumed with satisfying the body appetites. As Peter would go on to say, the unsaved man, the natural man, is like a brute beast. Animals are two-dimensional creatures. Of course, they have no connection with God. Uh, They were created by him, but they have no fellowship with God. They are two-dimensional creatures. They have a body and a consciousness. And their consciousness lives to satisfy the body appetites, food, water, Uh, procreation and so on unsaved man is on the same level as the animal kingdom but only man has the ability unsaved man fallen man has the ability or at least the opportunity and put it that way to receive christ and when that happens the spirit which was dead comes alive resurrected born again man's nature is flipped finally right side up where the spirit is uppermost Consciousness lives to satisfy the spirit's needs, and the body, although important, is on the lowest rung. And again, we are connected to God, spirit to spirit. Very important, okay? Now, at that point when Adam and Eve first sinned, a curse came upon the human race. God pronounces it in Genesis chapter 3. Although he didn't leave man without promise, he said, someday I'm going to send a redeemer Through the seed of the woman, the women don't have the seed, the man does. The rabbis always believed that was a reference, or scholars, I should say, always believed that was a reference to the virgin birth, which, of course, we know Jesus was virgin born. But uh, at that point, mankind, the family of Adam now, had a blood curse placed upon it by God himself. The Bible says, in Adam all what? Die. Because the blood curse was a curse that said uh, you are separated from God because of sin. If you go on in your fallen sinful condition, you will die in your sin and be eternally separated from God in hell. The Bible says all in Adam all die, but in Christ 
all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. And again, guys, now I'm just reviewing basically what you already know, most of you. Uh, being born of the Spirit means to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, at which time, again, your dead spirit comes alive, resurrected, and is connected to God. Communion takes place again, and uh, this allows the life and the character of God to flow in and through your life, as uh, Peter would say in Second Peter 1, verse 4. But it also means that, again, the first time you were born was a physical birth, and you were born into the family of Adam, which is a cursed family, doomed to spend eternity apart from God in hell. But now you are born a second time, spiritually. And what that does is, when, you're, when you were born of the Spirit, you were born into a new family, the family of God. You know, we joke about how that, you know, we can pick our friends, but we're stuck with our family, right? I mean, the family you were born into, well, you got to play the cards you were dealt. Uh, I guess. And uh, the, the idea being, though, that, you know, you were, you know, family you were born into physically, that's your family. Just like when we were born physically, birth number one, we were born into Adam's family. Adam's family. <laughs> kind of scary, isn't it? But that family bore a curse. How do we escape the curse upon Adam's family? By changing families. You can't do that, you know, with your own family, although you may like to, but you can do it as a person by receiving Christ because at that moment you are born again, born into a new family, the family of God. No more blood curse, now blessings upon this family, and so on. So, um, and again, guys, there's no other way. I, sometimes people say, you know, well, I'm a Christian, just not one of them born again Christians. You know what? I understand what you're saying. So a lot of people who call themselves born-again Christians, I wouldn't really want them, you know, in my family either, some of them. But let me just say this to you. There is no other Christian than a born-again Christian because that's what makes you a Christian. And there is no other way for a person to go to heaven than to be born again, which is why Jesus emphasized this truth so much in John 3, verse 7, do not marvel. And he's talking to an ultra-religious guy. The Pharisees were ultra-religious. Now, they were not all bad guys. Many of them were hypocrites. But there were a few like Nicodemus who were sincere and had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. That's why he comes at night. Uh, there's 6,000 Pharisees roughly at this time in Jesus' uh, life of his ministry there. And uh, most of them were against him. But there were a few, a small handful, that said, you know, we have come to believe you are, you know, the Messiah. And Jesus wants to stress to this very, very religious man. Because as we have said, the Jews had a saying, if only two people made it to heaven, one would be a Pharisee and the other would be a scribe because they were the holiest in all the land of Israel. And Jesus wants Nicodemus to know, it's not by your works, Nicodemus. I mean, you are one of those who is meticulous about keeping the law, but no man ever ascended into heaven through his works. But the Son of Man has come down to where man is, fallen man, right? And Jesus says, don't marvel that I said to you, you what? Must be born again. Nobody, no one, no matter how religious they are or how good they think they are, is going to enter, enter into heaven apart from believing in Jesus Christ and being born of the Spirit. You know, D.L. Moody once said that, and I'm quoting him, Christians are born twice and die once, whereas unbelievers are born once and die twice. And of course, we know what he's talking about. Christians are born twice, in the sense that we're born physically, and then at one point we're born again spiritually. But we only die once, right? If the rapture doesn't happen, now we're all rooting for that. Because if the rapture happens, we're not going to even taste physical death. Bring it on, Lord. Okay? But if we do die, well, the Lord's going to resurrect us at the rapture and so on. We'll spend eternity with him. So we're born twice, die once. Unbelievers, they are born once physically, and they die twice. 
physical death, and then what the Bible says, the second death, which is the phrase for the lake of fire or hell. So that's eternal death, the eternal punishment, and so on. All right, getting back to 1 Peter 1, verse 3, because you all have no doubt by this time forgotten the verse. Let me just pick it up, verse, beginning of the verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his, to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, listen, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse 19, because I live, you will live also. And if you study the context of that statement, he was talking about his resurrection. Us living for eternity, us being resurrected from the grave if we do die before the rapture, it's all predicated upon Jesus and what he did. That he died, and when he rose from the dead, he didn't just rise from the dead himself, he conquered over death. That death no longer will hold those who belong to him. He has set us free from the power of death to hold us because of what he did. Well, again, verse 3, begotten us again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And guys, the hope of heaven, again, as we just said, uh, for the child of God, it's all connected to Jesus. He did the work. The work that he did, and of course I'm thinking primarily of his death and resurrection, affects all of us who belong to him because I live, you're going to live also. Well, sure, because if we're part of him, if we're hidden in Christ, then whatever happens to him happens to us, right? But this idea of um, what Peter talks about, um, this is our hope, right? Our hope. He talks about it in verse 3. Begotten us again to a living hope. When you read hope, in the Bible, you might be prone to think it's an I hope so hope. Okay? Something that I'm hoping is going to happen. But whenever you see the word hope in the New Testament, it's always an I know so hope. Why? Because it's always connected to a promise of God. It's always connected to a promise of God. When God makes you a promise, you can have absolute assurance that that is going to come to pass. That is an I know so hope. It is not, you know, maybe 90% hope. It's 100% whatever God has promised will happen. He's promised me eternal life. If I believe in his son, that will happen. Now, let me say this, and don't lose me, please. As Christians, we often think of heaven as our inheritance. But Peter says it is the place where our inheritance is being reserved. In other words, kept for safekeeping, for our arrival into heaven. And uh, so we live in joyful uh, anticipation of our uh, inheritance someday. And just like Israel lived joyfully in anticipation all the years they were in the wilderness, right? It was their great, it, it's what sustained them. They would talk about it constantly to their kids that someday God was going to bring them into a promised land. And there they would live from that day on. The wilderness was only temporary. It was not permanent. Someday it would end and they would enter into this glorious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, where, where God would bless his people abundantly and so on, right? That was their joyful hope all the years that sustained them all the years in the wilderness. Well, it's kind of like us, okay? I mean, all the years that we are in the wilderness of this earth or this world, uh, serving the Lord, getting persecuted. Peter's going to talk about that. We'll look at it next time. But the trials that we go through, all this, we, uh, what keeps us going is thinking about our inheritance. This thing that's waiting for us that we're so full of anticipation about, joyfully anticipating and so on. And eventually, of course, Israel did enter the promised land where each tribe and family received their inheritance. You can read Joshua chapters 13 to 19. Now, look, we know that the Jewish people inherited land. But what exactly do we as Christians inherit? Peter talks about our inheritance. Okay, we're 
joyfully waiting for it, and so on, is being reserved for us. Um, what do we inherit as Christians? We do know that Peter goes out of his way to tell us that whatever this inheritance is, it's incorruptible and undefiled, and that it will never fade away, verse 4. Incorruptible is a word that means not subject to destruction, decay, or death. Unlike Israel's inheritance, which could be taken from them if they committed gross sins, which they did, and for different times they were taken out of the land, so their inheritance was basically removed from them, or they from it, okay? Uh, but just as Israel's inheritance could be taken from them due to their sin, our inheritance will never be subject to revocation or destruction. So it's incorruptible. Number two, Peter says it's undefiled. The Greek word means unstained and unpolluted by sin. Everything, guys, in this present creation. And Peter, before he's done with his second epistle, is going to talk about the, um, how God's going to vaporize this creation, which has been defiled by the fall, and God's going to recreate it. But right now, guys, everything in this present creation is stained and polluted by sin because of the fall of man. When God first created the world, the universe, remember every day he stepped back and said, it is good, it is good. At the end, God said it was all good. So God made a good creation, didn't take man long to mess it up. By disobeying God and injecting into God's good creation a cancer called sin, which has been eating away the human race and growing ever since. Yet Peter is telling us that our inheritance in heaven is completely pure, perfect, and undefiled by sin. He finally says it will never fade away. The Greek word means that our coming inheritance will never pass away, expire, or come to an end. All right, but what exactly is it? What exactly is our inheritance? Well, in a word, Jesus. Jesus, who right now is in heaven awaiting our arrival. That's why our inheritance, guys, is first of all incorruptible, not subject to death and decay because Jesus is incorruptible. That's why our inheritance is undefiled, which means unpolluted by sin, because Jesus is undefiled. And that's why our inheritance will never fade away, never come to an end, because Jesus will never come to an end or fade away. He abides forever. Now you might be thinking, wait, wait a minute, wait, I thought my rewards for faithful service to the Lord were going to be my inheritance in heaven someday. And while it is true that we have been promised rewards in heaven for how faithfully each of us has served the Lord here on the earth, this isn't, in my mind, this isn't what Peter had in mind when he talks about our inheritance. First of all, rewards in heaven will not be the same for all believers. Again, it all depends on our faithfulness. Not every Christian is as faithful as the next. Our rewards are based on our faithfulness on our service for the Lord. So in that regard, we, listen, work for our rewards, but we do not work for our inheritance. You see, the key word of this entire passage is the word inheritance. Inheritance. Listen, an inheritance is something usually given to a person by a relative when that relative dies. This inheritance is promised. And the relative's will, which is also called a testament, and isn't transferred until the death of the testator or the one who made the will. To take possession of the inheritance, all the beneficiary has to do, quote unquote, is to receive whatever the uncle or father, relative, has willed them, whatever wealth that might be, uh, has been willed to them to receive this wealth, this inheritance, they don't have to do anything. All they have to do is receive it as, listen, most of the time, I'm sure not always, but most of the time a will is an unconditional promise that doesn't require any work on the part of the person the wealth or the inheritance has been promised to, right? So, you know, you, uh, you, you get wind that your uncle Harry has died. And his lawyer contacts you to let you know you were named in his will. You come in for a reading of the will. And as the, the will is read and it goes down, every person that Uncle Harry left some valuable thing to or money or whatever it might be, some wealth, 
uh, right? It comes down to you, and Uncle Harry says that you've received this amount of wealth or whatever he owned, uh, you know, uh, is now yours. But there's no strings attached or conditions to meet most of the time to receive whatever Uncle Harry has willed to you. You just receive it. You don't have to do anything. And that's exactly what's involved in our inheritance through Jesus. God promised us great wealth in his will, testament. But we couldn't receive it until Jesus died. That would be the new testament, the new will, okay? The old will, they had to do things to inherit blessing. They had to keep the terms of the law, the Ten Commandments. God said, if you keep the terms of my law, then I will give you blessings and honor and so on. But Israel so often violated those conditions. And therefore, they didn't see the blessings of God as much as they could have if they had walked in obedience. But instead, because they broke the terms of the covenant, Mosaic covenant, they saw the wrath of God, the judgment of God. All the while, God, though, knew he was going to make a new covenant, not only with the house of Israel, but all those who would receive Jesus as their Messiah. This would be the new testament the new will all right and it would be in jesus blood remember we said someone has to die for a will to be then carried out okay i mean you know uncle harry as long as he's still alive you can't say well, uncle harry in your will you promised me that uh, that car of yours i'm going to take it now right no you got to wait till uncle harry kicks the bucket all right someone has to die for a will then to the the wealth to be distributed among the beneficiaries. Well, Jesus was the, uh, the person upon which the new covenant was based. And it wasn't until Jesus died that the wealth that was promised to us in him was released for us to enjoy much of it right now here in the earth, but also for eternity. We call it everlasting life, which we said Sunday is not a quantity of life it is a quality of life it is life in all of its fullness richness blessing and joy it wasn't until jesus died that the covenant was ratified and the riches were released when jesus shed his blood it allowed whatever was willed to the people of god for them to then take possession of Many of the blessings that we have as Christians are ours right now by faith. You know, it's very sad that Christians are walking around like paupers when they have great wealth in Christ. I'm not talking about financial money and stuff like that. I'm talking about spiritual blessings. They walk around like defeated paupers, spiritually speaking, when in fact, through what Jesus has done, he has released victory to us. He has released blessing. He has released everything that makes life worth living because we've now become partakers of the divine nature, Peter would go on to say. Turn to Hebrews 9, which you can read on your own at length. I'm going to read it to you out of the NLT. You can follow along with me because it, it gets into the flavor of what we're talking about. But Hebrews 9, starting with verse 15, that is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. Talking about Jesus Christ now. He's the mediator of a new covenant in his blood. When he died, the riches were released for us to enjoy. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under the first covenant. Now, when someone leaves a will... It is necessary to prove that the person who made, uh, made it is dead. The will goes into effect only after the person's death. While the person who made it is still alive, the will cannot be put into effect. That is why even the first covenant was put into effect with the blood of an animal. For after Moses had read each of God's commandments to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book, the words of the covenant, uh, both the book of God's law and all the people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. Then he said, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and, every, and on everything else uh, used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. 
For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And of course, that applies now to the new covenant. How that without Jesus shedding his blood, there could be no remission of sins. There could be no uh, adoption into the family of God. There could be no inheritance waiting for us in heaven. It was all dependent on Christ dying, which put the will into effect and allowed us to draw the blessings of the inheritance we now had in Christ. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, Paul said, For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. That's just Paul's way of saying, if you really have faith in Christ, if you really belong to the Lord, yeah, you're going to share in his glory someday. But you know what? As proof that you really have opened your heart to Christ and are a new creation, the same thing Jesus suffered at the hands of unsaved people, you're going to suffer. Persecution, lies, reviling, and so on. So listen, guys. Even though our rewards in heaven will vary from believer to believer, that's true. We all inherit Jesus and the fullness of all that it means to be one with him for all eternity. That is something we don't earn. It is ours by faith. Because again, it's a promise God gave to us. It's the new will, the new testament. And it's all based on what Jesus did, not what I do. That I enter into this family, God's family, by faith. Well, back in 1 Peter 1, verse 4, he said that we were given an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Reserved in heaven for you. You know, the idea of having a place and an inheritance reserved in heaven for each of us is the result of accepting Jesus' invitation to come and be a part of his kingdom. The New Testament is loaded with invitations, and many of them have to do with salvation, with uh, heaven, okay? Uh, the one we're most familiar with probably is, is Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you, who are, uh, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Speaking to the Jewish people who have been taught by the rabbis and Pharisees that to get into heaven you had to earn it by keeping the law down to the smallest detail. Uh, a heavy yoke of bondage that they could not ever, ever satisfy because they were sinful. They couldn't do it. They couldn't work their way into heaven. And Jesus said, look, if you're tired of that, if you're burdened down, you're heavy laden with all this weight of the law to do these things to earn heaven, come to me. I'll set you free. You just receive me by faith, and I'll give you heaven as a gift. Now, once a person accepts Jesus' invitation to receive him, as Lord and Savior and King, of course, they have a place reserved for them in heaven. I'll just read you two verses. You don't have to turn to these, okay? Two scriptures. Philippians 3.20, Paul said, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. When does that happen? Well, we can make a case that it happened before the foundation of the world when God chose you, all right? But practically speaking, it happens when you gave your heart to Christ, your name was then registered in heaven, and you became at that moment a citizen of heaven. Why? Because you're a child of God, and that's God's home. So you are brought into God's house. All right? You are made now a partaker of everything that belongs to God. Heaven is where we're going to spend eternity. We are now citizens of heaven because we've received Christ's invitation and have accepted him as our Lord and Savior. In Revelation 21, verse 27, John says, But there shall by no means enter, uh, enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, in that context, he's talking about New Jerusalem, but it also applies to heaven. When a person, you know, just let me put it to you this way, okay? A person dies, and we'll say, and they walk up to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I want to get into heaven. I'm here, I'm ready to get into heaven. And the Lord said, well, let me pull out and see if your name's on the list. Oh, not, your name's not written in the book of life here. Well, but Lord, I was a good person. I, I went to church every week. I, I helped out in the food pantry. Yes, but you never received me as your Lord and Savior. Therefore, your name is not written in the book of life. I can't let you into heaven. Your sins have been paid for. The moment we receive Christ, our name is written in the book of life 
practically speaking, yes, I know, was written there before the foundation of the world. I'm just talking about in time now, okay? Our name was written down, and we became citizens of heaven. We have a place reserved for us in heaven because of what Jesus did, right? Now, the thing about it is anyone can get to heaven. John says in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus Christ, his blood was the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. God is not excluding anyone. The invitation is to everybody. Come, be a part of the kingdom. But people, of course, reject God's offer because they want to live wicked lives. And then when they, want to, and they die, they often want to stand before him and say, well, Lord, you know, can I still get in? No, you cannot. Because right now on the earth, this is where your eternity is determined. So guys, again, Peter tells us that this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you who are kept, how? Verse 5, by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be received in the last time. I don't want to be redundant, but look, here again, this inheritance, this idea of inheritance uh, is the focus of this whole chapter, chapter 1, and the idea is, again, the inheritance, yes, is Christ, okay, Jesus. But you have to understand it's what is meant by being in Christ. The whole book of Ephesians, the theme is in Christ. Where is salvation? In Christ. Where are all the blessings of God that God wants to give us? They're only found in Christ. So when we talk about this inheritance, we're talking about being in Christ salvation, eternal life. Yes, it's all Jesus. But you understand what Peter is trying to get to here, okay? Peter clearly identifies this inheritance now in verse 5 as referring to salvation, which we enter into through faith, just as he also does in verse 9. He says, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So verses 5 and 9 make it very clear that Peter has in mind with regard to this inheritance, our salvation, being in Christ. But you say, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. As believers in Christ, we've already received salvation. So then what is Peter saying when he talks about salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? Well, it's what Paul was referring to in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 23. If you turn there quickly. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul said, And not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, listen, the redemption of our body. Guys, we are saved or redeemed right now, soul and spirit, but not in our physical bodies. Our bodies won't be redeemed until the rapture when they will be transformed and glorified is the idea, okay? Um, in fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 50. And again, I'll read it out of the NLT. Well, sometimes makes things a little clearer. Uh, I don't study out of the NLT, but sometimes it's nice to read verses uh, after you've read them in your version, which is a stricter translation. The NLT is a paraphrase. So... Uh, the authors can take as many words as they want to make the thought clearer as best they understand it in the original. So it does have some good features to it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, Paul is saying, What am I saying, dear brothers and sisters? Uh, what I am saying, I should say, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. You, we will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died uh, will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. We would say glorified bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And guys, at that time, the time of the rapture, 
our salvation will be complete. John said when, we, uh, when he appears, we will finally be made like him, for we will see him as he is. When the rapture takes place, and Jesus said, come up here as we meet him in the air, we're zipped off the earth, instantly meeting the Lord in the air. At that point, on the way up, which is not going to be very long, uh, we will undergo a dramatic transformation. This human body, which is corrupt, prone to death and decay, will be replaced or transformed with a glorious new heavenly body, one that will never grow old, one that will never wear out, one that's designed for heaven. Right? This old beat-up Volkswagen is going to be replaced with a heavenly Ferrari. And man, am I waiting for that new model. Okay? But guys, at the rapture, our salvation will finally be complete. This is what Peter is saying. Yes, we have salvation already, uh, soul and spirit, but not body. The body hasn't been redeemed yet. It will be at the time of the rapture. One last thing in verse 5, and we'll close. Where Peter says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, again... Salvation ready to be revealed would be redemption that's coming, which would be at the rapture. So the idea is that we are being kept right now by God in Christ, in salvation. We are being kept by the power of God, say, through faith. Well, yeah, because we entered into this whole thing by faith, uh, our relationship with Christ. But once we entered into salvation by faith, God is the one holding us there. We are being kept by his power, his strength. Notice that Peter says we are being kept in Christ, in salvation, by the power of God. He doesn't say that your salvation is secure. Listen, as long as you hold on real tight to Jesus, because if not, if you lose your grip before you die, you're going to lose your salvation. So a lot of people think. Remember the ark, Noah's ark. Uh, which the Bible says was a type of Christ, a type of Christ. You remember how that God brought Noah and his family into the ark, all the animals, and then it says very specifically, God shut the door. God sealed them in the ark, okay? Then the waters of the flood came, and the ark was no doubt tossed to and fro in the waters of judgment, right? During the time the ark was tossed to and fro, probably Noah and his family fell down numerous times in the ark. But they never fell out of the ark and perished because they were sealed by God. When you receive Christ, you were sealed, Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ until the day of redemption. Now, as a believer, do you ever stumble and fall in Christ. You ever blow it? You say no, you better come see me. <laughs> we are going to, John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Just because you're in Christ doesn't mean you are incapable of sinning. And in fact, we will stumble and fall numerous times in the course of our Christian life, but we will never fall out of Christ and be lost. Because God has sealed us in Christ. There's a lot of Christians who have a theology of salvation that says, well, the ark uh, is a type of Christ, but it's like this. Imagine that God pounded pegs into the side of the ark and told Noah and his family to hang on real tight as they were hanging on the outside of the ark and the waters of the flood, you know, and when everything was said and done and the flood was over and the storm and everything, if they were still hanging on to those pegs, they were saved. And that's like a lot of people, their theology of salvation is, look, when you come to Christ, you've got to hold on real tight to Jesus. And if you can hold on real tight and you're tossed to and fro in this world and trials and everything, if you're holding on real tight, though, when it's all said and done, you're still hanging on. You're going to be saved. It's all dependent on you, though. Living a holy life or obedient life and so on and so forth. Not that I'm saying we shouldn't live obedient lives. That's not what the New Testament teaches about salvation. And, of course, Peter 
is not saying that here. We are being kept by the power of God. He has got us secure. Well, let's put it this way. I'll read you Jude, verse 24, because there's only one chapter in Jude. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Do you realize what Jude is saying? Now unto him, God, who is able to keep you from stumbling. What does that mean? Stumbling from, from sinning on a practical level? Well, I don't believe Jude has that in mind. Because he's talking about someday presenting us. Okay? I believe what Jude is saying, now unto the one who is able to keep you from stumbling and falling out of Christ, and who will present you faultless someday before his presence with exceeding joy. It's all the work of God. I'll have you turn to John 10, and then we'll close. And again, you all know it. John 10, starting with verse 27. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. That's a great litmus test as to whether or not you really know the Lord. Are you following him? Perfectly? None of us do that. But are you still following him in general? Or are you going some opposite direction and calling yourself a Christian? There's a lot of that going around, isn't there? People who call themselves Christians who are into all kinds of godless things that God has forbidden. And they still think that they're a Christian. Jesus said, my sheep, look, they hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Listen. And I give them eternal life. How long is life eternal? Forever, right? I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He says, I give them eternal life by his very definition. It's life for eternity. If God gives you eternal life the moment you receive Christ, you can't go to hell. You can't go to hell. Because you, if that was the case, he would say, well, I give you the possibility of eternal life. Let's see how you work. Let's see how you measure up. The Bible says that the very moment you receive Christ, you have everlasting life. You can't lose it. It wouldn't be everlasting. And then he said, And they shall never perish. Mine, who belong, shall never perish. The Greek is in the middle of voice. It's reflexive. And they shall never do anything to cause themselves to perish, is the idea. Our people say, well, you know, Jesus, the Father and the Son of God is in their hands. And some wise guy said, yes, but I can wiggle out between the fingers and lose my salvation. You are one of the fingers, okay? Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse said, you're a part of Christ. You, you are one of the fingers. You can't wiggle out of his fingers. You are part of his body. Warren Worsby said this, and I quote, and we'll close. He said, but suppose we don't make it, <laughs> a timid saint might ask. Worsby says, but we will. For all believers are being kept by the power of God. The word translated kept is a military word that means guarded and shielded. The tense of the verb reveals that we are constantly being guarded by God, assuring us that we shall safely arrive in heaven. And then he quotes Romans 8, verses 38 and 9, where Paul said, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ. Salvation. In Christ Jesus our Lord. The question I want to leave you with tonight is, are you a created thing? Please don't stare at me. Are you a created thing? Or am I talking to a group of cyborgs? <laughs> of course you are. Of course you are. If you are a created thing, then not even you can separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
What do you mean? I'm trapped in Christ? No. If you really know Christ, you don't feel trapped. You feel what? Secure and safe, just like Noah and his family inside that ark. You think they felt trapped in the ark? When the waters outside were racing and churning and outside the ark was certain death, inside the ark was life? You think Noah and his family felt trapped? They felt secure. I don't feel trapped in Christ. I feel secure in Christ. Because it's all about him holding on to me, not me hanging on to him. Because if it was about me hanging on to him, none of us would be saved. We, we all blow it. Thank God he's hanging on to you and me. And in that regard, we're never going to lose our salvation. It's all wrapped up in him. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word gives us truth. It gives us uh, peace. And Lord, because we study it now and we pray that we would be, you would lead us in the right, always at the right interpretation, Lord, that we might then apply it accurately into our lives. We thank you, Lord, for our time in your word. Didn't get very far again, but Lord, that's okay. Because the truth that Peter puts here is so important. We need, must not rush through it. So Lord, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.